Our prize prisoner, the one we call number six. Toughest case I've ever handled. I could crack him, of course, but I can't use the normal techniques. That's why I need you. Why do you need me? You have a unique physical advantage. You know, you, you really do bear remarkable resemblance. Remarkable. Your job, number 12, will be to impersonate him. Take his sense of reality away. Once he begins to doubt his own identity, you'll crack. Welcome to Prisoner Worth Watching, where we're looking at this groundbreaking 50-year-old show about spies, paranoia, and politics that's more relevant now than ever. I'm your host, the one who uses a black microphone. My co-host is Guy, who also claims to be the host, but who is using a white microphone, so you can come to your own conclusions. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So how's your ESP score coming along? Well, if you don't know by now, I guess it's not working. <laughs> It's sort of like, why haven't you won the lottery? But <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had context for this episode. I don't really. We'll talk about some of it at the end. I watched the commentary by the director. And unfortunately, where some commentaries, they really get into details about the episode and, you know, what went well and what didn't and what they had to change. All he wanted to talk about was the different productions and plays and shows that he had done with Patrick McGowan and how much, how well they worked together and this and that, which is, that's all great, <laughs> but it doesn't <laughs> give me any cool stuff to talk about the episode with. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and I think this is one that really deserves that. There's a lot to, to talk about, but we'll, mm -hmm. we'll come up with our own material. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> with that, on to the schizoid man. 17 out of 25 is quite remarkable. Couldn't it just mean that we're simpatico? It might, but there's more to it than that. Out of the last four runs, you've got 73 out of 100. You're gifted. We start out in number six's apartment, and right from the beginning, this is a different episode, because number six is sort of relaxed and having fun, and he's with a woman. <laughs> Those two things mm -hmm. both <laughs> don't usually happen. They're experimenting with ESP cards, which was a big trend in the 60s. And, you know, it's those cards that have a circle and a square and wavy lines, and you're supposed to figure out what the person's looking at. Yeah, and this is how Ghostbusters starts also. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I love that bit of Ghostbusters. <laughs> square. Good guess, but wrong. <laughs> Clear your head. Tell me what you think it is. Is it a star? It is a star. Very good. That's great. Think hard. What is it? Circle. Close. But definitely wrong. Okay. So number six is looking at a card, and she tells him what shape is on the card. And they do this a bunch, and she seems to have a 100% success rate. She thanks him for helping her practice her mind-reading act. I guess it's for the next uh, thing the village is going to be doing. It's hard to see how it could be an act because she's not looking <laughs> toward him and she's getting all the cards. It turns out that although we saw them all succeed, number six says she got 73 out of 100. As he says, quite remarkable. Oh, yeah. And she now wants to take a picture of him with the cards. She picks up a big honking camera. This thing is huge. I guess, you know, it's the way things used to be. Yeah. 
And she wants a close-up, and she's weaving around and does about the clumsiest possible <laughs> thing she could do. And she knocks over this huge soap bottle or something, and it smacks number six's fingernail. Mm -hmm. And he's got a little blood blister under the fingernail. Surely this won't become significant in the story. <laughs> <laughs> she wants to keep testing her skills, but number six decides they've had enough. And just overall, as I mentioned, he's much more warm and sincere towards her than probably any other person we've seen him interact with so far in the series. And I do have a recollection, this might be wrong, but I have a recollection from somewhere that she may have been the only actress who had a good experience with McGowan on the show. And if so, mm. I think that kind of comes through in how they interact. Mm -hmm. And now we're in the control room and our new number two enters. He asked to see a video of number six sleeping in bed, <laughs> which... Seems maybe kinky, but I guess not. <laughs> and then he orders the pulsator to be turned on. And we see a light above number six begin to flash and then lower down over his head. I think we've actually seen this before. Yeah, one of the previous episodes had a similar device in it. Yeah, and then a medical person shows up in his bedroom, gives him a shot in the arm. They take him out. And by this time, I'm not sure why number six ever bothers to go to sleep. Because every <laughs> time he does, they seem to pull one of these things on him. Yeah. So he's removed from his bed, and something we've never seen before, he's got a little paper calendar indicating what the date is next to the bed, and it's February 10th, and they take that along with him. And then we see him in a bed somewhere else, and a doctor is doing something to a mole on his arm. Mm. We're not quite sure what's going on there. Yeah. And then he's sitting up in bed, and a couple of white-coated dudes are approaching him with a shock stick, so it's, this, it's probably about a three, four-foot-long stick. He bats it away with his right hand because he's right-handed, and it shocks him. And one of the guys who we'll see again later says left-handed, number 12. And when he does it with his left hand, he's got a rubber glove on the left hand, so he doesn't get shocked. Yeah, I missed that little detail. Yeah, it's really subtle. It's just like a doctor's glove, so it's not like... Uh, I don't even think I had ever noticed it before this time. Hmm. And then we're back in number six's apartment. And we see the calendar being put back on the bedstand. It has the same day as before. Now, I don't know why they had to take the calendar since it's not like an automatically updating calendar. <laughs> they could have just left it there. So it shows February 10th, but we don't know how long it's actually been. Number six is in bed, but now he has a mustache, which is a rather mm -hmm. odd look for him. <laughs> That's what we're yeah. used to. And I noticed possibly darker hair, which turns out to be true. So he has, yeah. he has definitely kind of dark black hair and a mustache. I'm not going to say kind of a 70s porn look, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He wakes up, he stretches, and then he notices he's got a mustache, <laughs> which he didn't have when he went to sleep. He starts freaking out. He opens his closet. His jacket now has a number 12 button on it. He gets a call from number two. He says he hopes he slept well after his flight and he should see number two in 15 minutes. So number six, or is it number 12, exits his apartment, but it's not his apartment. It's number 12's apartment. The sign is right there. And in a welcome but unusual display of diversity, a Sikh guy walks by with a turban and greets him as number 12. And then as number six is walking along, there's a villager pushing a guy in a wheelchair, and she greets him as number 12, says it's nice to see him again. He asks her why she called him number 12, and he said, well, that's who you were the last time I saw you. <laughs> Yeah, the village is up to its old tricks again. Yep. I'm kind of curious, you know, when they're trying to organize all this stuff, do they get 100 people into the <laughs> big room and sort of lay out all the bullet points of what they need to know for the latest scheme? <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, it makes you wonder. They probably set out bagels and refreshments and all that. <laughs> and now we're in number two's office. And number two, and this is a number two we've never seen before. And he greets him very warmly, says he has to pull every string they could get to get him here, offers him breakfast. And he offers him two options. There's a cart with a la carte where he can choose whatever he wants. Or, and this is a phrase I'd never heard before. He said, tabla de haute. Hmm. And I looked this up and it means a set menu. I was, I was wondering about that. Yeah. Now what I'm used to seeing is a prefix, uh, which, you know, another French term, which means a fixed price, but it is slightly different because with a fixed price menu, you often have a choice of two or three things that you can choose between where tabla de haute, they've just done it for you. Hmm. The weird thing, especially for a casual breakfast with two people, is why would you have both a la carte and table de haute? Because you're going to waste some food, whichever one they choose. But of course, yeah. the reality is that number two is up to something. <laughs> so number six, or is it number 12, checks each of the a la carte containers until he finds pancakes, or what we, although they're more like crepes. Yeah, they even have little lemon wedges on them, which is not really American pancake yeah. style. Yeah, and he just goes after these things. So he's, he really wants them. He stabs them in the fork and puts them on his plate. Then he goes to the main table and picks up the lid over the dish that they had prepared for him. And guess what? It is pancakes. Mm -hmm. And number two says, do you think I forgot we used to call you Flapjack Charlie? <laughs> Number six now says, sorry, I didn't shave. I couldn't find a razor. It must have been removed. I'm in a strange apartment. What's going on? He's clearly discombobulated by all this. And number two says, our prize prisoner, number six, is the toughest case I've ever handled. And I could crack him, but I'm not allowed to damage him permanently. So that's why I need you. <laughs> and number six says, what do you mean you need me? And number two says, well, you have a unique physical advantage. <laughs> number six says the physical advantage of growing a mustache overnight. <laughs> number two remembers how number 12's wife, Susan, wouldn't kiss him until he grew the mustache again and says he has a remarkable resemblance to number six. And so his job is to impersonate number six, take his sense of reality away. And once he begins to doubt his own identity, he'll crack. Number six says it'll be hard to convince him that he's not number six. <laughs> And number two takes this as him getting into character. Ah, oh, you've started living the part already, eh? Mm -hmm. And now number two puts a number six button on, you know, whichever one this is. <laughs> and says, you are now officially number six. And number six says, I shan't need this to remind me that I'm... And you, you realize he's got a little struggle here because he's identifying as being number six, which mm -hmm. means he's giving in to the village a bit. So he says that I'm your number six. Right, right. He he won't just say I'm number six. He yep. has to qualify it. And this is an interesting theme in in the episode, as we'll see, because at some point he does start insisting he's number six. Like that is the only way he can kind of keep his identity. Yeah, although, uh, well, yeah. Well, when we get to that, we can. <laughs> it may be the other number six who insists on that. I don't he know, does we'll at one point too. Yes. Oh, okay. So number two says he has a file of all the details he should study up on number six, and he throws the file to him, and number six catches it in his left hand. And number two says, you'll want to watch that number 12. Number six is right-handed. Mm -hmm. This obviously confuses number six a bit. And number two says, even though he's very similar to number six, there are a few things that need to be changed. He's going to have a couple of his girls work him over a bit for details. And then the statement I think is a bit dated and a little odd. He says, but don't worry, they're very pretty. 
Well, makes okay, sense to whatever. me. <laughs> okay. You want to get his cooperation? Of course, McGowan is the wrong guy to pull that stuff yeah. on. But, uh, <laughs> so the girls uh, shave his mustache off and they color or uncolor or whatever his hair to get it to be. I think McGowan is more of a brown haired kind of look mm. rather than the black. Yeah. And once it's done, number two says, you'd hardly know yourself, would you, number 12? <laughs> And number two takes him to number six's apartment and says, number six will be showing up in a bit. I'll leave because I think that it'll be more powerful if you meet him yourself. And number six gets upset and he goes through and he says, you've changed things is not the same. You know, there's some newspaper there he would have never had there. And then there's a statuette on the table and he said, this is silver. It should be guilt. And number two says, I shouldn't try that line with him. Number six has a very strong sense of territory. <laughs> He also says, once we get started, even I won't be able to tell you apart. You'll need a password to identify yourself. The password is Gemini. That's the astrological sign for uh, twins. Yeah, you know, good point. I didn't think about that. And number two then leaves. And a couple of minutes later, a white-jacketed number six enters the room, whistling. Oh, very good. Very good indeed. One of number two's little ideas, I suppose. Where'd they get you? A people's copying service or one of those double agents we hear so much about these days? So in my notes, I've indicated these two versions of number six as white and black, because the one who arrives now, the one we haven't been following throughout the episode, he's wearing a white coat. And the one that we have been following, he's wearing a black coat. Which is number six's usual dress, right? Right, right. That's his usual blazer with the little trim on it and so forth. Well, the white number six enters and he says, what the devil? Oh, very good. Very good indeed. He's, <laughs> uh, he's, he's a bit amused. Yeah, and I thought right from the beginning here, you know, Patrick McGowan is playing both roles. But this is not him just playing himself twice. Right from the beginning, it's a little bit different how he does it, the words he uses, his, his facial expressions. So McGowan was really kind of, you know, showing his acting chops here. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty entertaining, and we get a lot of, a lot of scenes with them together, and they, uh, they come off pretty well. There must be some split-screen style mm -hmm. special effects in some of these because you see them right next to each other. It's, it's pretty good. You're right. They do it really well. And I was watching really closely, and on the Blu-ray, in certain scenes, because what you know is that they can't cross a line mm -hmm. because to do this, what they do is they lock down a camera and they shoot the scene twice, and he's in one part of the room for one and a different part of the room for the other. Well, whatever the middle area is, they can't cross that line. Right. And so if you watch really closely, you can kind of figure out where the middle area is. And they'll do little, sometimes I couldn't see it. Like here in the, where they're in the apartment, I could not see the line, mm. even though I could guess where it was. In other scenes, It'll be a little bit wonky and the, the, the image will shift a little bit and you can kind of see if you're watching really carefully and you're looking at the Blu-ray where the line is. And they'll usually have some line like going down the wall or something, some natural line that they can then use as the line so that it's harder for you to tell. Yeah. 
There was one scene I noticed where the, the tint of the wall on one side of the line was just slightly different from the tint on the other right, side. Right, probably the lighting changed a little bit or something. Yeah. And But they do a really good job. And like even in this scene, I notice there are points where one of them will walk past the other and you see his shadow at the exact mm. same time. So that means, you know, they had another actor and that other actor was doing it at the exact same time. So oh, yeah, yeah, they did a, a really good job. And I think if you aren't yeah. really looking for how it works, it just looks completely natural. Right. Yeah. I, I thought it was done real well. So the, the black number six who has been here, who got here before the white number six, he says, the least I can do is offer you a drink. And he asks if, uh, the other by the way, this six... is right after breakfast. So they're getting started early. <laughs> well, they're civilized men. What are you going to do? <laughs> Black number six asks if, if he'd like some ice, and he goes on to say he thinks ice spoils it himself. White number six says, I always keep it in that thermos bucket over there. So white is kind of uh, marking his territory by pointing out that he always keeps it there. Mm -hmm. This is his apartment, even though he's the one being offered a, a hospitable <laughs> drink. And white says, when they come to film my life story, you've got the part. <laughs> <laughs> they both seem rather amused at the other's presence so far. They're, uh, it's, it would be an interesting situation to be in. They, they seem to be handling it all right so far. So white number six offers a cigar, and black number six takes it with his left hand, and white says, you'll have to learn to smoke <laughs> it right-handed first. <laughs> and black says, and you how to light a cigar, because uh, white lights it with a lighter instead of uh, a match, which is black's preferred method. And then black coughs from the cigar, and white says, and you how to smoke my brand without having a heart attack. <laughs> so they're going back and forth about this whole cigar business. Neither of them seems to have it canonically correct for number six <laughs> white mentions that there are black russian cigarettes in the box on the table he never touches them himself and we'll find out later that black prefers black russian cigarettes black says it's not going to work you know white ag agrees with him and, and tells him yeah he may as well just go play somewhere else he says you are the goody number six and i am the baddie he says, why don't we settle this like gentlemen? Black says, you claim to be a gentleman? White says, very good, very good indeed. That line is worthy of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say one of the interesting things about the white version is he's, he's more humorous and acerbic, where, you know, mm -hmm. the black version, if we assume it is our true number six, is that, you know, he's always more intense and he's not really funny. yeah. Yeah, he gets off a quip now and then, but it not, it's not his usual approach. Yeah. White says, we're both claiming to be number six, are we not? Black says, <laughs> I am number six. You are doing the claiming. So here, this is one example of where he's insisting that he is number yep. six. So you were right. <laughs> White proposes a round of pistol shooting to see how their skills compare. He asks what number six's average was, and Black correctly answers that it was 90%. <laughs> they go to the recreation room, which I don't think we've seen before in this show. We'll find out that it's somewhere in the big church-like building where they had the art exhibition in a previous episode. 
The pistols they use, they're electronic. They're like the light guns that you might use with a Nintendo or, you know, Yeah, well, uh, the white says that number two is not going <laughs> to risk them having actual bullets. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, they, they don't even want you to have a stone axe in the village. <laughs> when Black picks up his pistol, white says, I'm sorry, old boy, number six is a right-handed shot. So he's got to shoot at a bit of a disadvantage. What they're shooting at actually is a lot like a Nintendo Duck Hunt type <laughs> game. It's a big screen and it gets uh, silhouettes popping up on it. And this is actually evocative of a previous episode where we saw a blue screen with black silhouettes on it. Mm -hmm. This is a little lighter blue, but it's still basically the same deal. When they shoot at the targets, you see a little dot of light appear on the target where it's hit. I'm not sure how they did it. Maybe they had a light bulb behind the screen and lit it up. I'm not, I'm not sure what they did there. Right. But it's a decent effect. Yeah, although I would say for a spy show or things or gadgets especially are supposed to be cool, this is very unexciting. <laughs> like, I'd mm. rather be playing a, you know, 1980s light gun game for kids. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, this is really, uh, aside from the technology involved, it's really not at all far removed from just a typical shooting range, you know, where you'd have pop-up targets. Yep. Very similar. We see a view within the war room where number two and a companion of his, I'm not sure what his number is, but we find out that he was Haitian. So I'm going to call him the Haitian. They're looking together at a screen of uh, number six and number 12, or black and white, aiming pistols at, a, at the screen, and the two silhouettes on that screen are aiming rifles. So it's layers of screens in there, and the, you, the mm. image just changes a little from depth to depth. So it's kind of a neat shot. And also, of course, they probably filmed the pistol stuff in the same room that number two and the Haitian are in. So you're in the mm. room that they were in, looking at a video of them in another room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> number two says, it's uncanny. Number 12 has caught the man's whole style. And the Haitian says, in Haiti, we'd say he's stolen his soul. <laughs> this guy was a perfectly good actor, and I was glad that he was here. But, well, I really don't focus on political correctness too much when watching old shows. It is unfortunate that the only reason we have a black actor here is so he can say this kind of thing, which is sort of a stereotypical, that's what those kind of people say sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He really doesn't seem to serve much purpose uh, throughout the episode, which, uh, which is unfortunate because it looks like he might have some fun, uh, fun stuff yeah. that he could do. But, oh, well. <laughs> Back in the rec room, the shooting match has ended, and White says, well, I certainly shoot more like me than you do. <laughs> he, uh, he says that Black uh, should have practiced more. Black asks how his fencing is. White replies, these foils have all a length, which is a line from Shakespeare, and Black replies, I am my good lord. White says, Hamlet, Act 5. Black says, Scene 2. And White says, you have done your homework, haven't you? <laughs> and in the war room, number two says, no, you've done yours, even the Shakespeare bit. Mm -hmm. now, of course, they can't hear him saying it, but number two is just admiring his handiwork. Yeah, I think the implication is, like, he didn't set him up with that. You know, White <laughs> had to have done that preparation himself, Yeah, Yeah. 
In the rec room, uh, they're fencing, white and black, and White says, it's, it's good enough, but it could hardly have gotten black my place on the Olympic team. So he's boasting about his Olympic prowess, and he's been on multiple Olympic teams, we'll find out in a moment. Yeah, which is kind of interesting information for a spy, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> presumably you're a little bit famous. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah. So uh, White beats Black at the fencing, and he uh, he says, if ever you do challenge me to a duel, your safest bet is battle axes in a very dark cellar. <laughs> <laughs> He's not impressed with Black's fencing. And, uh, and coming back to the difference between them, that is a line that our normal number six, Black, could absolutely say. But mm -hmm. if he said it, it would be meaner. Uh, you know, where when White says it, it's more of a joke. Yeah. There are some subtle differences. I mean, the first time I watched this episode, I was pretty much just mostly baffled. Do you know? <laughs> it was hard for me to... Keep track of who was mm. who. And I, mm. I knew that one had a white coat and one had a black coat, but it was still hard for me to keep mm. everything straight because they'll have these little dialogue exchanges that were, they just muddy the waters a lot. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And again, you imagine watching this back when you didn't have VCRs and you couldn't watch it again. Yeah. It was probably a little bit daring for the, just to do that, just to take a chance that people would follow it enough yeah and i'll have more to say about that <laughs> oh yeah so they leave and this is where we see that they've been in the art exhibition building which now has a sign over the entranceway that says recreation hall white asks do you still claim to be number six black says it's beginning to get on my nerves a little bit i suppose you're an olympic boxer as well are you <laughs> white replies you should know it's in my record so number six was both a boxer and a fencer in the Olympics. Yeah. And here, by the way, I will kind of reverse what I've been saying, where White is sort of the more humorous, absurdic. I mean, he gets mean here. <laughs> yeah. White goes on to, uh, at first, it's a fake punch that he throws. The first one's fake. But it quickly degrades into a real genuine fight. And Black does not hold his own. He's, he seems confused and off balance. Yeah, he doesn't know what hand to put up. And I think White says, well, will you commit to either being Orthodox or Southpaw, right? And, he, right. and I think he's just so confused about what hand to use that he just, you know, he just gets totally screwed over. Yeah, yeah. Black goes down into the muddy street and White says, I'm surprised at number two. His agents just aren't what they were. <laughs> <laughs> and then we hear an ominous roar, which mm -hmm. is Rover. White says, we're in trouble with the headmaster. It must be confusing for it, not knowing which one of us to bite. Which turns out to be a bit of foreshadowing. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I just, I just now as I was reading that from my notes, it just occurred to me, oh. <laughs> another, another one of those things that you might easily miss uh, in 1967 or whenever this was. <laughs> mm -hmm. So they get to number two's place, and once they're into the foyer, White number six is quickly hauled off by some assistants. He's hauled back into the big dome room. Yeah, not in a nice way either. They're, you know. Yeah, yeah, they're uh, very uh, abrupt about it. Inside the dome, the black number six gets to stand with number two while he's asking some questions of white number six. He starts off with, who are you, number two asks. 
And there's a loud machine that's being used as part of the interrogation. And White says, switch that idiot thing off. Number two says, who are you? And White says, you know who I am. I am number six. And he, uh, he like, like the other guy a few minutes ago, he doesn't try and dance around. He doesn't say, I am your number six, or I am what the village calls number six. He just says, I am number six. And making a big deal of it because, you know, all through these episodes, we continually hear that refrain of, I am not a number. So this is a little different take on that now. Number two has various questions, and one of them is number six's purpose here, and he has a good answer to that. A white number six replies, I have none. I'll go away again if you like. <laughs> and that's a normal number six line, right? For, yeah. Especially in the first episodes, yeah. <laughs> number two asks why he was in the rec room, and white says, I was teaching that synthetic twin of mine how to shoot and fence. <laughs> Number two asks what he wants with number six. White says, I am number six. I am number six. Number six. And then he repeats six over and over again about five times. (laughs) (laughs) He insists upon it. So if this was black number six, who we believe is the real number six, if he were in that chair and he were behaving this way, that would be a real triumph for... The village mm-hmm. management, because it would be getting him to, you know, identify with that name, number six, mm-hmm. that he's he's rejected all along. Number two says, in aside to black number six, he says, by the time we finish with him, he won't know whether he's number six or the cube root of infinity. <laughs> <laughs> so then they go through a sequence. It actually probably takes a minute or two, but all it mm-hmm. is is a fingerprint test. And it proves, in scare quotes, it proves that black is the is the real one. White says, the trouble with science is that it can be perverted. <laughs> and black agrees. He says, I mean, if I were in his shoes, I'd rather be convinced by a human being than by a piece of machinery. So he gets number two's permission to call number 24, who is also known as Allison. This is one of the rare times I've mm-hmm. seen in the show so far where they actually refer to somebody with an actual name. Yeah, they never actually use her number, and you can only tell what her number is by looking at her button. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he calls her to come to the dome, number two's dome, and bring her ESP cards. I thought it was funny because she says, well, I was about to wash my hair. <laughs> the old excuse for uh, not doing something. Yep. <laughs> yeah, the old classic. <laughs> So she gets there, the butler admits her, and the butler, I hadn't noticed it before, but he's got a comb over, and it's very jaunty today. It's just, uh, it's really standing out. Number 24 gets into the dome room, and she says, good heavens, it can't be. Because she's seeing both of them there for the first time, right? Right, right. She's seeing a double image in black and white. And black number six says, Mother Nature has been up to her tricks again. (laughs) Number 24 wants to know what the deal is, and Black says, I am the original. He is the economy pack. (laughs) (laughs) I like that line. It turns out that the plan is to take advantage of the mental link that number 6 and number 24 believe that they have. So Black, who we believe is the real number 6 and who is the one who went through all the card testing with her at the beginning of the episode, He's the first one to try the test, and he grows more and more flustered because she ends up going zero for five. She doesn't get a single one right. 
So he's frustrated, and White, who has been on trial up to now, he seems a little smug, and in fact, when he does the test with number 24, he gets much better results. Number 24 says, you don't have to tell me, I just know that's five out of five. He's the one. He's number six. So this is a turnabout for Black. Yeah, and I think it throws him because he feels that they have this mental connection. Mm -hmm. So sort of like the whole left-handed thing, this one is really hard to figure out, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, nothing seems to be going the way he anticipated. (laughs) Number 24 points out that all of this business could have been avoided because all they'd have to do really is check for the mole on number six's left wrist. Well, Black looks down to his own wrist, and it turns out that he doesn't have a mole there. So White says he'll see her home, and they depart. Number two is incensed. He says, what in heaven's name made you do a stupid thing like that? Surely you must realize that number six and that girl have got a genuine rapport. So he's he's really playing along with the idea that Black is actually that's number 12 who's been mm-hmm. brought in to mess with the, quote, real number six. So number two calls up number 118 on the video screen, who just looks like your usual harried IT guy. <laughs> and uh, he says, number 118, why was there no mole on number 12's left wrist? He wants to see him in his office first thing tomorrow morning. Apparently yeah, number, number 118 is a guy we've seen consistently through this, you know, taking him out of his bed and doing stuff to him and shocking mm. him and all that. Yeah. Okay. Well, number 118 is, uh, he's in Dutch at the moment, it looks like. <laughs> Back at number 12's apartment, the black number six, a.k.a. number 12, is uh, dreaming fitfully. He's lying in bed. He's tossing and turning. We hear the soundtrack of his dreams. There's some kooky laughter. He has various disturbing quotes from the past day, things that didn't sit right with him. Number two is watching this with white number six. And he says, he's cracking, number 12. Won't be long now. (laughs) So Black gets up, sits up in bed. He glances at the nightstand calendar. Which still says February 10th, right? Well, The same date we've had for this entire episode. It's kind of funny because most of these episodes, time will get skipped. And you Mm kind of have to figure that out. But this one, it feels like it takes a long time. But in reality, it's all happening in one day, theoretically. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, he glances at the calendar and sees that it's still the day it was before. But then he notices the blood blister under his fingernail, where uh, number 24 injured him at the very beginning of the show. And from looking at it, just a cursory glance can tell you that the nail's been growing out for weeks. The blood is now halfway up the nail. And he checks the picture that number 24 had taken, and the blood at the time was still right down at the cuticle. So it's been some unknown amount of time has passed. Yep. So I had to look this up. It turns out there's <laughs> lots of pages on the internet talking about how fast fingernails grow. And <laughs> they grow at an average of three and a half millimeters a month or about a tenth of a millimeter per day. And I measured my own <laughs> fingernail. <which is> about <laughs> size his, and it turns out that that blood injury had moved about a quarter of an inch. So going by that, it would be about one and a half months that he would have been, you know, being conditioned, which I suppose is probably consistent with him growing a mustache. Mm-hmm. 
So they're probably being pretty accurate here, but it is it is a remarkable amount of time for them to invest in this particular scheme. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, they they really thought they were going to accomplish something with this one, I guess. As luck would have it, on one of my big toes, I actually have a blood blister that's been <laughs> gradually moving its way <laughs> up the up the toe, and it does take a long while for those things to really cycle out. So mm-hmm. So I can I can verify at least this aspect of the show is accurate. <laughs> so having realized that a lot of time has passed, number six looks in the mirror and he recalls a lot of things about the time while he was out. Uh, he recalls being trained to use his left hand, being conditioned to use his left hand, I should say. We could get a shot of him in bed in his treatment. He's saying... Well, he has things in his ears, right? They've, like, inserted something in his ears, and he's either repeating them or something, or repeating statements. Mm, Yeah, right. He's got some kind of earphone-type things. He's saying, I'm left-handed. I'm number 12. I do not smoke cigars. I do not smoke white cigarettes. I smoke black cigarettes. Black cigarettes, I smoke. Flapjacks are my favorite dish. <laughs> uh, and then we get to see a few screen or a few scenes of him being brought various breakfast foods, and he's rejecting all of them except for the flapjacks. Yeah, and they don't really make it clear, but my assumption is that they've done something to make the other meals taste bad. Because, mm. you know, yeah. It could be, yeah. Uh, they might have uh, put something nasty in them. Could be. So he comes out of his reverie. He remembers at least some of the details of the training now. He goes to a cigarette box. He takes out a white cigarette, and he breaks it in half. He inspects it. There's nothing unusual about it. Then he takes out one of the black cigarettes, the ones that he's been conditioned to prefer. He breaks that in half, and there's some kind of wire in it or something. I'm not certain exactly what it's supposed to be. Well, I have experience with this, actually. So when I was a kid, my sister and I kind of got on our high horses about people we knew smoking. Mm -hmm. And there are things you can buy, which are these little strips like that, that you can insert into a cigarette. And in that case, it would just cause it to like start sparking and, you know, doing stuff that would keep the person from smoking it. So we actually did that to people we knew <laughs> where we oh. spiked their cigarettes with these things. So I think that's basically what this is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember they used to sell the cigarette loads as a novelty item, mm-hmm. you know, that would do the kind of thing you described. Mm-hmm. But, but this is a black cigarette and these are what he's supposed to like. So I'm thinking the wire might be something more like uh, maybe a mild intoxicant or or something that would Hmm. encourage him to go for the black cigarettes. But it's not really clear. It's just clear that the black cigarettes have some kind of weird thing. Yeah, whichever direction it is, what we see here is they've been screwing with this stuff to to get (laughs) the results that they want. (laughs) Yeah, like like every other episode. (laughs) (laughs) The lamp that's next to the couch is flickering and that'll be important in just a moment here the light is just kind of there's some kind of electrical problem with it number six takes a cigarette out of the box with his left hand he's about ready to smoke it but then he notices that he used his left hand 
Mm. And he discards the cigarette. He recalls the doctor's voice telling him that he's left-handed. He's come up with apparently a plan <laughs> to clear out all these metal cobwebs. There's a metal pipe on the fireplace. I think it may be a gas pipe. He grabs that with his right hand, and with his other he grabs the malfunctioning lamp, which zaps him with electricity and knocks him to the floor. So I'm not sure if that's how it would work in real life. But, uh, <laughs> I guess he was at least being smart by grounding himself by grabbing the pipe, because I think if he hadn't done that, he would electrify himself. Mm, could be. Although if it's alternating current, I, I think it's... Gener I mean, people can die from it, but I think it's less likely because it doesn't <laughs> just fix you in place, I believe. Mm. I am not a, an electrician, though, yeah. so <laughs> take that with a Don't take salt. your advice from this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, he's knocked to the floor, and he comes back to his senses pretty quickly, and he knocks a box off the table, and he very nimbly catches it. And I think the idea of this is to suggest that Somehow that shock reset his skills. Yeah. He's no longer the fumbling, brainwashed guy he has been. Yeah, because he catches it in his right hand. Mm, yeah. And I think that's the point there, and he's quite happy about it, and he throws the box on the table. Now, I'm gonna, I am gonna—I know why for story purposes, but still I'm going to point out that one shock wipes out a month and a half of conditioning. <laughs> you know, it seems a little odd. Yeah. yeah. Well, one shock plus a lot of grit and determination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now our newly reinvigorated number six, he leaves the apartment, and as he steps out the door, a rover rolls by, but pays him no heed. The rover's on his way to some other appointment, apparently. <laughs> Back at number two's place, the butler is giving him a massage, which is, uh, the butler has, has all kinds of talents. Yep. And it's kind of funny because now instead of being in a nice uh, suit the way he usually is, he's got this kind of white T-shirt on for doing massages. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, number two gets up to check the cameras for number six. He wants to see the black number six. And the cameras show an empty apartment. Number two says, control room. Number six is gone. Find him. Meanwhile, this guy, the black number six, he's working his way through the darkened village. And he runs into two guys, and he, he makes a somewhat cryptic remark. He says, the atmosphere is very different here from what it was elsewhere. Yeah, and I did some reading up on this, because that remark is so out of the blue that people who are into The Prisoner have tried to figure it out. I thought maybe it was some other Shakespeare reference. It's not that. Mm -hmm. So... The most believable thing to me, they did a lot of rewriting on this, and so there are people who say this is a reference to something from a previous deleted scene. I also saw a theory from a person who styles himself as a prisoner expert, and he thought maybe it's referring to the fact that this scene was shot on a soundstage instead of Port Marion, and it was kind of an inside joke. Mm. I have a hard time believing that because they, I mean, you know, they mostly filmed on sound stages, so I don't know why they would, yeah. you know, it doesn't make any sense to me, but... Basically, it's a mystery. No one's quite sure what this is supposed to mean. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. At any rate, he gives his Gemini password to these two guys, but they're not impressed, and they get into a fight. It's a mm -hmm. very short fight. We see that number six has regained all his, old, <laughs> all his old secret agent skills because he mops the floor with them pretty quickly. 
Yeah, so, you know, if you're ever feeling out of it, just remember that electric light trick or, <laughs> or <Yeah>. don't. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, just, just get in the bathtub and, uh, you know, toss a toaster <laughs> in or something. They lots of options. <laughs> so he continues through the town, and now Rover is blocking his path. And he comes up with a neat little stratagem to outsmart Rover. He steals one of the wagons, you know, one of the carts that they drive through the town. He steals it. And then gets a little ways down the path, and he bails out. The wagon keeps on going, and Rover follows it. So that's got it off number six's tail for now. <laughs> number two issues an orange alert, which I'm not sure what that's supposed to accomplish, because Rover's already out and about. That's a good point. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably all kinds of protocols that go into effect with an orange alert. So the white number six, he's in his apartment. And now he doesn't have actually have the white coat. Now he's just got the blue shirt from underneath it. He wakes up as soon as the black number six enters his bedroom. He says, I'm a very light sleeper. It's in my file. And he's holding a gun. He says, five yard range, nerve gas. One squirt, you're paralyzed. Two squirts, you're dead. <laughs> it occurred to me that I've heard something like this before. After a moment's thought, I remembered that this was how the Daleks' weapons worked in season one of Doctor Who in that uh, series of episodes where we mm. first met them. They'd shoot you once. I think it was your legs would go numb, if I remembered right. Mm -hmm. And then the second shot would kill you. So here's a, here's a prisoner fan theory. Maybe, maybe the Daleks are actually the force behind the village. Makes sense. So could be a crossover, you know, between the two series. <laughs> Black number six asks, who am I? White says, you know who you are. You're number 12. I think that Black is being strategic here. He says, mm -hmm. sometimes in my dreams, I've resigned my job. And White answers, why did you resign your job in your dream? So once again, we have somebody from the village trying to weasel this information yep. out of him. And that, I think, to, to the real number six is just further proof that he is who he thinks he is. Yeah, he's uh, definitely doing a put on here. He's not confused about his identity at this point. Yeah. Yeah. But he got the white number six to get a little overeager there, I think. Mm. He, he would have done better to hold off. Especially with what white does now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. White gets the idea to call number two because he might be able to help. Which, of course, is not something number six would ever do. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that almost immediately provokes a fight. And this time, the black number six, he's back to true form. He, he <laughs> wipes the fake guy out with very, very little difficulty. And I think this is the second time we see blood in the series. Uh, number 12 has a little bit of blood in his mouth showing how uh, how beaten he's been, yeah. Uh, very good. Number six demands to know the real password, not that stupid Gemini nonsense. <laughs> and it turns out the real password is schizoid man. And with a little further probing, he finds out that uh, number 12's name is Curtis. Yeah, something I'm disappointed about here. Curtis, you know, the fake number six, he collapsed so quickly. I mean, he'd put up such a good front and he'd done such a good job pretending to be number six. And then mm -hmm. he gets punched a little bit and he's like, okay, I'll give you everything and tell you my name. <laughs> and, and, and in a really pathetic way, like, eh, my name is Curtis. Anyway, I just, I was a little disappointed. I thought he was better than that. 
Yeah, yeah, the the mighty have fallen. (laughs) One note here is, and it's a little confusing, especially for people who just watched the show once, but the last thing they do in the apartment is the real number six says, give me your left arm. And he peels off the fake mole and he puts it on his left arm where the mole had been removed. And then they go outside. Rover approaches the both of them. He approaches the real number six, the one, the black coat. He approaches him first, and he gives the schizoid man password. Then it works. Rover loses interest. But then he turns. Well, I don't know if Rover actually <laughs> turns. turns. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't be able to tell. <laughs> he changes direction <laughs> and uh, approaches Curtis, who also says schizoid man. And the password doesn't work for him. He says it multiple times, and it still doesn't work. And he ends up getting the old face full of latex treatment from Rover. And apparently, this actually, this isn't just subduing him. This is actually killing him, or because number yeah. six says that soon. So there's two points. We do find out that Curtis was, was killed after, which maybe, you know, we had, from the very first episode, not known when that happens to you, do you die or not. But on the other hand, we've seen people, including number six, get that treatment where their face goes into latex without dying. So I don't, I think it's up to Rover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think so. And, and later on, uh, number two even says something about him still looking into why Rover did that. Yeah. So. Now the other thing here is, and this is why I brought up the mole switch where he grabbed the fake mole from Curtis and put it on his arm because there's no indication in the show of why Rover takes number six's use of the password seriously, but not Curtis's. And the general theory is that it's the mole, even though there's no way Mm. in in what we see for, for Rover to see the mole. The theory is that the mole shows that number six is, is the real one or, or is number 12. Uh, Okay. And and that's why Curtis is killed. That's the theory anyway. Yeah. No, that, that does, that does make sense. And that would, uh, that would also justify the Right before where, where he did the mole swap. Yep. So, sure, makes sense. So, after Curtis has shuffled off the mortal coil, number six goes back into the apartment and picks up the phone and says, get me number two, Curtis, here. <laughs> so, now he's engaging in a little subterfuge. Yeah. Number two asks for the password, and he gives it to him, schizoid man. And he says, number six is dead. <laughs> number two really, uh, he, he just says, what? But the way he says it is really alarmed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very believable. And I'm going to get back to that with his actor. I mean, he's he's really good. Yeah. Because, of course, for a number two, having the real number six die is bad news. That means, <laughs> that means you're in hot water. Number six says, he's dead. Rover got him. <laughs> and I think this may be the first time that I've seen in the series where anybody actually calls it Rover. Yeah, that could be. Yep. Then uh, number two says, control room, deactivate rover immediately, pending further instruction. And I liked this because it was realistic, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't know what's going on. Rover apparently did something wrong, so he just immediately acts to shut him down. It's it's a good manager move. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's it's another sort of maybe thematic link. We've talked about the, uh, the Westworld 
statues that appear in a couple <laughs> episodes, and this is kind of the Westworld situation, you know, where uh, <laughs> things are starting to go wrong with the electronic mm-hmm. help here. <laughs> Number six, before he leaves the apartment, he uh, makes a point of putting on the white coat. Mm-hmm. So now we've got black number six, who is also number 12, who's now white number six. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of uh, different roles in this show. Mm-hmm. At number two's dome, number two's still baffled that Rover killed number six. And the real number six says, there'll be hell to pay. Number two says, you ought to return immediately to report your failure. <laughs> to which number six replies, my failure? You wanted him broken. I've broken him. I wasn't to know he'd go berserk. <laughs> Number six says this was two's idea. And this is this is a case where he said more than he needed to mm-hmm. because he could have he could have tipped his hand here. And six says this was two's idea. Two says Number six knows it wasn't number two's idea. Number six says, well, at least he didn't resist. And number two replies, well, bearing in mind its origin, no, I didn't, nor did you. So these orders to do all this cockamamie scheme came from someone high up, possibly number one or perhaps this general they mention later on. The key thing here, I think, is number six, this is the beginning of what we're going to see to the end of the episode. He's being uncharacteristically sloppy. Mm -hmm. He's really confident. So he has a chance to escape here because they think he's number 12. And he is being really confident and saying things that he doesn't actually know. Like here, he doesn't know who came up with this. He just assumes number two came up with it. And if he was just a little more reticent, he might be able to get away with this and get off of the island or get off, get mm-hmm. out of the village. And we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so after number two points out that it wasn't number two's idea, number six tries to smooth the waters and he says, recriminations right. aren't going to help. It's a disgrace for us both. Mm-hmm. Number six is to leave in about a half hour, but first number two wants him to talk to Allison, number 24, just to see if she knows anything else about what was going through number six's head. So he goes to her apartment. He says, my masters would want to know if you had any insight into his mind. He says, I don't believe in such things myself, but goes on to say that they were supposed to have some kind of psychic relationship and so Mm -hmm. forth. Then number 24 says, it doesn't work like that. Six says, oh, how does it work? One of the things I think McGoon does well here is that We've seen previously he had a very warm relationship with her, but now he is acting like the white-coated <laughs> number 12. He's being very mm. abrupt. He's not being nice to her. Right. Yeah. Although it doesn't seem to completely convince her because mm. after she replies, she replies when he asks, how does it work? She replies, in spasms, little things, sudden coincidences, which aren't really coincidences. And... As she says that, there's one of those little coincidences, because even though his back is to her, he knows somehow that she's taken out a cigarette, and when he turns back to her, he has a lighter ready. You know, that's a good catch, because I noticed something about that, but I didn't understand what it was they were getting at. So, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. And that lighter, by the way, is another detail of his pretending to be Mm. Curtis, because Curtis was the one who used the lighters, and he used the matches. So from that sudden coincidence, we get the feeling, even if you don't know exactly what it is 
that she's seen, she seems to know that he's he's the one that she had the connection mm-hmm. with all along. So that probably is another thing that was reset by the the lamp zapping him. <laughs> Back in number six's apartment, in Curtis's effects, number six finds a photo of his wife, Susan. So he takes that. And he puts on the suit too, right? So we've never seen him in this suit before where it's a more it's a normal kind of three piece. Oh yeah, he's yeah. not wearing the village uh right. white white coat. Good point. So he's taking a wagon ride with number two. They're they're going to the helicopter. And number six is a bit curt and he uh he says the woman didn't know anything of value. Number two thinks that he's a little miffed at him and he says, Look, old chap, we've been through many scrapes before, but we've never fallen out over them. The general's not going to behead you. Number six says, We won't know until I've reported to the general, will we? Report to the general? That's a new one. Mm. Well, I don't mean report to him personally. For Pete's sake, you know what I mean. <laughs> so this is, again, a case where number six said more than he had to mm. and just further potentially aroused suspicion. Yeah, and and number two, again, I think the actor does a really good job. Each time number six says something a little weird, you can just see him being confused because he clearly had a really good relationship with number 12. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, you know, he starts out thinking this is number 12. And so it does really kind of confuse him when he says these things. Oh, yeah. Now, number two, we don't know this just yet, but I'll, I'll just say that this number two is now going to do a little leading statement here just to throw mm-hmm. out some bait and see if number six takes it. He notes that number six is a little edgy. And uh, he says, yes, I remember Susan saying a month ago that you're generally quite unflappable. You have changed. Number six replies, we all change. The job changes us. They get to the copter. It's parked outside the recreation hall. And there's a few people milling around, including uh, number 24. And she, she says to number six, I'm ashamed of what I did to number six yesterday. And she <laughs> she realizes that this is the real number six, yeah. the one that she had a connection with. And he says, why are you telling me? She says, everyone has to tell someone. It was your job. She <laughs> says, it was a betrayal. And he says, isn't everything we do here? <laughs> she says, you don't often get a second chance. And goes on to say that if she had a second chance... She wants him to know that she wouldn't do it again. So she was in on the whole ESP card thing and making it fail for him and work for the other guy, but she doesn't feel good about it. Mm -hmm. So number six is ready to get into the chopper, and number two tells him he's got to put on his blindfold for security's sake. And right before number six is blindfolded, number two says, you won't forget to give Susan my regards, will you? Number six says, I won't. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. And the t- copter takes off with a blindfolded number six. It flies around for a little while, and then it lands, and it lands in exactly the same spot <laughs> it took off from. Number two talks to number six. He says, Susan died a year ago, number six. And that's the end of the episode. Number <laughs> Number six didn't react to the various mentions of Susan that were inappropriate. And that was how number two knew that he was a fake number six. <laughs> yeah. 
And it, and I think partially he was screwed because when he was putting on, we didn't mention this, but when he was putting on Curtis's stuff, he found in the wallet a picture of Susan saying, you know, with some note from her. So he knows that that is his wife, mm-hmm. you know, and, and obviously yeah. just is missing this one piece of, of information. Uh, I was right. impressed that after all this, that once he says Susan died a year ago, number six, that's just it. You know, we see the the number <laughs> six head come up and the, the show is over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was a little bit of a, a twist. It, it's kind of, uh, I'm, I'm thinking they've had a similar twist in another episode where there was some little, oh, the the one with the chimes of Big Ben. Yeah. Uh, or he sees the the watch on his wrist. Very similar style of ending there, I think. Yeah, well, and also, the actually, it's similar to the very first episode, Arrival, where he takes off in the helicopter, and then, the hel- and in that case, from remote control, the helicopter's brought back to the same spot. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, talk about this in general. We'll get to your evaluation. I'll say right up front, this is one of my favorites, maybe my favorite episode of the series. Yeah. I just think there's a lot of really great stuff in this. And I also think there's a lot of, of flaws that we can talk about. Hmm. I'm talking about the acting. So again, number two, and I've already tipped my hands on this. So this, uh, this number two is played by Anton Rogers. I think he was really stood out from other, I mean, we've had a number of really good number two performances and his stood out and was different because it was very natural. Like he's a real human being in a way that the others are not, you know, he's not playing it over the top. He has a real empathetic relationship with number 12 and he is, he has a very natural performance. You know, his reactions seem very real. And so I, I looked up his history and he started acting at 14. <laughs> hmm. So that may be why he was able to be so natural. And I also thought it was interesting. He played Andre, a uh, a corrupt French cop in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and he uh, was helping out Michael Caine. So I'm going to have to go back and check that out. <laughs> yeah, very good. I'm telling you, I didn't steal any money from her. She gave it to me. Then she filed this complaint against you, monsieur. She caught me with another woman. Come on, you're French. You understand that? To be with another woman, that is French. To be caught, that is American. I love that movie. And that film is on our list one of these days. <laughs> Very good. So do you have any thoughts about him or what did you think? Yeah, I liked him. And uh, yeah, he's not, you know, some of the number twos are almost caricatures. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they have a personality trait or two and they really lay into it. And this guy, not so much. I mean, I did develop a mild distaste for him just from the <laughs> fact that he is a number two. You know, he he's doing all this devious, underhanded stuff as we go along with trying to persuade number six that he's number 12 and so on and so forth. So, I mean, it's just the nature of the number two job that mm-hmm. you're going to be loathsome and contemptible. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought he did, did well. I would say a difference between him and, say, Leo McKern is number two is that Leo McKern was really, really into it, where I feel like this guy, he's just doing his job, you know? If, mm-hmm. if the job was something different, that's what he'd be doing, right? It's it's not like this is his life mission to break number six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At the end, when it, when he, or toward the end, when, when he got the word that number six was dead, that, what? Captain number two, Curtis here. Password? The schizoid man. Number six is dead. What? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he really sounded worried about that. <laughs> yep, yep. So we have number 24, our ESP woman. What do you think about her? And, you know, we've had, we know McGowan's relationship with women. We've had a number of major women in the show. Where do you think she fits into all that? I liked her. If number six was to have a uh, romance with a lady of the village, uh, she'd be a good good candidate <laughs> for her. One thing I've noticed, I have no idea if it's on purpose, although I suspect it is, is that good people who are not totally bought into how the village works tend to have a number that's a multiple of six. So in the general, the guy who was kind of the younger equivalent of Patrick McGowan was number 12, and she's number 24. Mm. So just thought that was interesting. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, have we seen a number three in this show yet? Don't think so, no. Because I'm wondering, with McGowan being a strong Catholic, I wonder if the Trinity might have <laughs> figured into that. You know, like hmm. multiples of three or the Right. Who hmm. knows? I don't know. So what do you think of McGowan in this, you know, playing the two roles? And- oh, it was fun. Yeah, it was very interesting to see the two guys meet. It would be a weird situation to be in, and the way they handled it with quips and good humor and, mm-hmm. you know, amusement and all that. It felt realistic. I mean, for the show, it fit in to what we might expect. So, yeah, I thought it was a decent performance by him. Mm-hmm. Worked for me. <laughs> for me, both in Danger Man and here, and, you know, of course, I don't know what McGowan was actually like, but I get the feeling that he's just more or less playing himself with these characters. Mm-hmm. And... So this is uh, the episode where I feel like I really get a sense of, oh, he is an actor who's making acting choices because of all those subtle things we talked about, about how he plays these two roles differently. They're not unrealistically different, but these are two different personalities. And I thought he did a really nice job with that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Story-wise, I think there's a lot to talk about here. I'll start out with the (laughs) title. (laughs) So I think Schizoid Man is a great title, but it's not really accurate because I I think that what they were probably referring to was schizophrenia. But schizoid Mm. is something different, and I was was looking this up on Wikipedia. So schizoid personality disorder is characterized by a lack of interest in social relationships, a tendency toward a sheltered lifestyle, secretiveness. Affected individuals may be unable to form intimate attachments and simultaneously possess a rich and elaborate but exclusively internal fantasy world, which Hmm. also means I may have learned something about myself reading about that. I was thinking the same thing (laughs) (laughs) about me, though. (laughs) Yeah. But where I think they meant schizophrenia, which the major symptoms include hallucinations, hearing voices, delusions, paranoia, that sort of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. But they're very similar words. They may not have known or cared because they wanted to use a cool phrase. Yeah. I know also that schizophrenia, not so much nowadays maybe, but, you know, back in my youth, it was often used as a synonym for multiple personality disorder. So, yeah, there's a few different ways they might have influenced the. Yeah, I think you're right. And I I think that's really where that came from. Now, what stuck out to me is I was thinking schizoid man. I have this phrase in my head, 20th century schizoid man. So... The band King Crimson, their first album was released in October of 1969, actually the month I was born, and they have a song in there called 20th Century Schizoid Man, 
Well, that was exactly two years after this episode was released in England and King Crimson was in England. Hmm. When I looked up stuff on Wikipedia about the album, I didn't see any reference to this, but it is hard for me not to think that they took the phrase schizoid man from this episode. Could very well be. It seems like every series at some point, the main character in the series has to have a double. Star Trek is probably the classic of this, right? Where where Kirk has his double and at some point they're having a fight and they're rolling around and the crew is trying to figure out which one to shoot. But this is an unusual take on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it actually, given that what the village wants is to get the secret of the resignation out of number six, they really went to a lot of effort for a pretty lame attempt at actually getting <laughs> that information, I thought. I mean, when Curtis finally does ask for the information, he does it so precipitously, so ham-handedly, you know, that it's just, mm-hmm. why even bother? <laughs> so, so if you were doing the performance review, you wouldn't have been impressed. <laughs> Especially taking a couple months to do this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think he I think he jumped the gun. You know, he, he should have called, contacted number two first, probably, mm-hmm. and then. At a later time. But then again, you know, number number six came in and he seemed vulnerable and sensitive. So, you know, maybe he thought that mm-hmm. was the right time. But what he didn't know was that number six had gotten his superpowers back. <laughs> what I think is interesting is usually like in the Star Trek situation or, or any other series that does this, the only person who knows the truth are the two doubles, right? Which one of them is real. Right. In this case... Everybody knows the truth. (laughs) And the purpose of it isn't to fool the village. The purpose of it is to fool number six. So I thought that was kind of an interesting twist. Oh, yeah. To that. Yeah. I would say of any scheme we've seen so far, and maybe that we'll even see in the future, this is probably the most effective. I mean, in in a period of one day of this occurring, he is really thrown and, you know, clearly has some questions about what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It definitely messes with his mind. I mean, the the conditioning is really, they condition some serious stuff into him, changing the which hand he uses, Mm -hmm. uh, what food he likes, what cigarettes (laughs) he likes. I mean, you'd think if they can condition him that thoroughly, there's got to be some way they could just go ahead and get the (laughs) damn information. Mm Mm-hmm. We've seen that in other episodes, too, where the things they can do don't seem to be directly relevant to what they want to do. <laughs> yep. Now, for me, the uh, and I think that they probably did the right thing for the for reducing confusion in this story. As we talked about, you know, this is a time when you couldn't really rewatch something, and they rewrote it a lot, as I mentioned. And I believe they made changes like right up front, right in the almost the very beginning. They show you the scene of them conditioning him so you know what it was that happened to him. And my recollection from something I saw was that that was an insert. That would have been later in the episode when we saw when he was starting to realize all the stuff that had happened to him. Mm, But I think they moved that up and showed it right in the beginning because they wanted the viewer to know exactly what was happening and and which one was the real Mm. number six. 
And right. you mentioned, you know, for yourself that it was a little confusing watching it the first time. So given that, I think they, they probably made the right choice. It was a confusing enough episode. But to me, mm-hmm. you know, I think this is a great episode of the show, but I think it would have been a brilliant episode if they'd actually had the courage to go all the way and make it so you don't know until the end which one is which. You know, So if I were writing it, I, for example, might have had number six waking up being in a helicopter, being taken to the village, you know, mm-hmm. being told he's number 12. Number two could have told him, like, remember, we've done all this conditioning on you, so you, so sometimes you're really going to think you're number six because we want you to act completely convincingly, even with your subconscious actions, so that he would have a reason to feel like he's number six. The other mm-hmm. thing I would do, or regardless, is they put number 12 in a white jacket. Well, as we said, number six never wore a white jacket. So that right up front is just saying, oh, this is the fake one. Mm-hmm. And the one in the black jacket is the real one. I would have switched the jackets. No. Um, and then, you know, not have it be revealed who's who until the end. But as I said, I understand it would be confusing. And they probably did the right thing, but I think if you were to do this in a modern show, and they did actually do some kind of remake of this, which I'm never going to watch because, you know, why would I, why would I do that? That's something if you were making it today that they might be willing to do, especially if it was like a, you know, an HBO show or something. Mm -hmm. But that's just me. (laughs) Yeah. It could be fun to watch uh, that that new series just for comparison's sake. But yeah, yeah, and I think it was only three or four episodes, so maybe we should uh, think about slotting that in at some point. But I'll I'll do it under protest. because <laughs> 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 I I I don't have a problem with remakes, and in fact, we're planning to watch a number of remakes in the future as part of a theme. But I feel strongly that it should be a remake that's either very different or of something that wasn't good. But, you know, you don't need to remake Citizen Kane. You don't need to remake, you know, and, and I just feel like, yeah, uh, what's the point? Yeah. Okay, so I will say on episode ordering, a little bit like number six was <laughs> thrown in this story, I've been thrown a bit because I have to admit, in the past when I've watched it, I had not really paid attention to or noticed a couple of references to the general. And, of course, we've already seen the episode of the general and we know what the general was. And I feel if I do this list again <laughs> you know, for someone in the future, <laughs> I would make a change here because in the end, as we talked about, he says, Look, old chap, we've been through many scrapes before, but we've never fallen out over them. The general's not going to behead you. <laughs> we won't burn until I've reported to the general, will we? Report to the general. That's a new one. And that really confuses number two. And once you know that the general is a computer, Hmm. That makes sense. Hmm. And I think that it it really bothers me now to have this come after we've seen the general. And I think that doing it again, I would put this episode before the general so that you get the satisfaction of the confusion of him referring to the general and then discovering what the general is. Right. You see, now, until you just mentioned that, I didn't even... It didn't even occur to me that that might have been the same general. I figured they were talking about just some other general. Yeah, and that's the way I've been all the way up to now. But if you think about it, when he says, well, I'll report to the general, and number two's like, well, that's a funny thing to say. Yeah, that would be. If you know the general's a computer, that makes sense, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You can't really really report to the computer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sure, makes sense. 
Of course, here's what will happen, you know, if I do that reordering, is that something else like this will pop up, and then I'll say, well, next time. Oh, know, I'll yeah. Do <laughs> so we're, we, at some point, you just got to make a choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so we get to our conclusion. I mean, you've heard my opinion, but, you know, you got to have your own. So is is this episode worth watching for a modern audience? Oh, sure, I'd say so. It's, uh, it's very entertaining, and it is a... Uh... It's actually probably more worth watching for a modern audience because those who are interested in it can actually go back and find out what didn't make sense to them the first time around, <laughs> as as I did. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's it's fun. I, I've really uh, so far the whole series I've I've enjoyed. It's uh, it's it's good. You know, some some episodes I like more than others, like the. The election had a lot of stuff in it that I liked, but there was still just sort of a weird mm. weirdness to it. I don't know. But, but <laughs> so, I mean, that was one of my less favorite ones in some ways, but in other ways that there were individual things in it that I liked. So, I mean, mm. but that's, I guess, guess most television shows that I like, even when they're uneven, you're still going to find something in it that makes it worth your while. But for some person walking in off the street who's never seen this before i'd say yeah give it a try expand mm. their mind a little bit <laughs> okay so next up in our perfect ordering of prisoner episodes or or maybe almost perfect <laughs> as we've talked about here <laughs> our next episode is checkmate oh so we'll boy see you then all right <laughs> So I was curious about this phrase, you know, these foils have all a length. And so I looked it up and there's a Sparknotes website where they do modern text for Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And so they, their modern text is, are they all the same length? Mm -hmm. And I will say, reading through a bit more of the Sparknotes, modern text really does drain the poetry. So right before this, when they're choosing swords in, in the Shakespeare, there's a line where... Hamlet says, this likes me well. And they translate it to, I like this one. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. yeah, I think I'll go with the original. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, a similar thing with, uh, like the King James Bible, you know, in religious circles, there's a big debate over which version of the Bible is the mm -hmm. true authentic one. Um, but a lot of people favor King James Bible and, uh, uh, I like it just because of the language. I mean, some yeah. of the stuff that reads really well in that, uh, in a modern translation loses some of its, uh, zen. well, you're reminding me, I think there was a fad in like the seventies to do updated versions of the Bible. So I remember when I was mm -hmm. a kid, I had one of those and it was just like this, right? It was just putting in really normal dialogue, you know, yeah. Jesus saying, Hey dude, how you doing? <laughs> Oh yeah, there was what was the way there. There were a couple of them that were particularly noteworthy for being just really, really trying to be contemporary. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's how you get the kids, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be seeing you. 